Moncrief on News Talk. Now, for many years, Mary Cassidy was, and still is, a very familiar name in Ireland, though often in rather gruesome circumstances. As the state pathologist, she would be one of the first people to arrive at the scenes of murders and other unexplained deaths. Her first novel, Body of Truth, is in the shops, but she also has a new podcast series on Go Loud, Dr. Mary Cassidy's Life in Death. Mary, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Sean. Nice to speak to you. You know, and people, I suppose, notwithstanding the introduction I just gave you, people would kind of maybe have the assumption that all you ever did was murders. I assume there was other things too. Um, Well, in Ireland, it was mainly the murders and suspicious deaths. Um, But when I was working as a forensic pathologist in Scotland, we also did cases, uh, any unnatural death. So it's, um, it's, there's none of it very pleasant. Um, (laughs) So much of the same. (laughs) And by when when it was an unexplained death, is that a situation where it might have been a murder or it just wasn't clear what what killed the person? Yeah, I mean, there were some cases where the guardie wouldn't be sure what they were dealing with and they, they would call us in. Um, and usually within about five, ten minutes, we've had a good idea of what was going on. But there are some cases every year, and it's dreadful for families, where we really can't explain the death. And we have, they, they, they literally go out as unascertained, not unascertainable, because hopefully science in the future will give us the, the answers. But, yeah, it's, it's dreadful to think that in this day and age, with all the science and technology, there's some questions we still can't answer. OK, could you give us an example of that? Oh, um, unfortunately, the ones that happen usually are cases of young people who are found dead, um, often found dead in bed. And um, the the initial assumption always is, must be drugs. Um, And we can, you know, examine them inside out. We take all the blood tests, we do everything and we don't come up with anything. And very often... In the, the olden days, as my, my kids talk about, when I when I first started out in forensic pathology, we didn't have the knowledge even about some of the cardiac diseases that we now are quite familiar with. And there used to be gaping holes in uh, in our knowledge. And nowadays we know that people, there's a lot of these um, congenital cardiac defects, which can cause sudden death. Um, and so hopefully, as I say, in the future, we'll be able to do all this genetic testing and be able to say, well, I can't, I can't actually show you what it was, but the your genes tell you that this is what this is the most likely cause of the death in this case. And and the important thing about that is is recognizing that there may be other people in the family who are equally vulnerable, and we mm. can do something about that. Yeah, um, and 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 normally speaking, when it when it seems to be a murder, <clears throat> can mm-hmm. it take you just five or ten minutes to figure out? Uh, what actually happened here? Well, in a lot of cases, it's, uh, I mean, I'm just stating the the bleeding obvious, as they say, because um, we, we more or less know what happened to cause the death and a lot of the murders in in um, in, uh, in Ireland. Um, they're, they're, they're pretty gruesome, yes, but, um, the, and there's no finesse about it and it's pretty straightforward. It's the, as I say, it's some of the ones where there's it's it could go either way that there is an issue. If somebody's got a head injury, could they have fallen accidentally where they pushed 
or were they deliberately struck in the head? Mm. And those are the kind of cases where that's where I was most of most value rather than counting holes in a body. Yes, indeed. Yeah, if yeah, if there's like massive knife sticking out of chest, it's pretty obvious yeah. you don't need much of a medical qualification <laughs> yeah. there. Uh, and, uh, no. uh, and and say in, in the example of it is a head injury. Are you just looking at the head injury? Or are you looking at what's around the body and what may have you know what they may have struck their head against? Yeah, that, and that's the important thing of being going out to the scene, um, and the scene to the pathologist is the body, where the body is, where the body lies, where the body has been discovered. And um, generally speaking, you're at the scene, you, you, you tend not to do too much, keep hands off, um, but you, you check out as much as you can. And then you're looking to see what's around the body. And there's something like a head injury. Could they have struck their head on something? Is there anything lying about in the vicinity that could have been used to strike the head? So we're just always looking for the little clues that might be there. Mm. When it's a body that's been found, uh, and, and it seems to be the case that perhaps the death didn't take care uh, take place in that location, what mm-hmm. kind of clues can you look for to discover where perhaps the death had taken place? Mm. Well, that's when the clever stuff comes in. That's when the forensic scientists come in. <laughs> we're... The pathologists are not the clever people in those instances because there needs to be a lot of work done. Yeah, because yeah, I was wondering about the intersection between those two things that if, you know, sometimes it could be maybe something they ate uh, that you might discover and you might say, no, mm-hmm. that's, you know, they, they wouldn't have eaten that there. They would have eaten it in Wexford or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And that's why, I mean, in any death investigation, it's teamwork. And that's one of the beauties of my job is I've met so many interesting and wonderful people who have contributed to these investigations. And that's partly what the the the, the podcast um, grew from that, because um, people just assumed that it was the pathologist who did everything and had all the clever answers. And it's and that's not the truth. And so it was nice to introduce people to the the really clever people who do have all the answers. Mm. So the forensic scientists, the archaeologists, and even, you know, talking to the people like the coroner, because people don't realise it's the coroner who's in charge of it all. He's He or she is directing operations, deciding who goes and who, who sees the body, who examines the body. And I think it's important to let people know the, these are the people that are often in the background Often nobody really knows what they do, and this was a, an opportunity for them to hear what these people do. Mm. Why, why did you decide to go down this? And I know you deal with this in the first episode of the, of the podcast. You could have been a doctor. Um, why, mm-hmm. why go down this route? Um, well, I think one of the beauties of doing medicine is that there is something in there to suit everyone. Um, not everybody's got the personality to be a GP. We don't all, we don't all have that empathy. <laughs> um, some people don't have the thrust to be in, you know, sort of a, be a, a surgeon. And so you you find your niche. And I find my niche in forensic pathology because I I learned very quickly that I, I wasn't good with sick people. Um, I I. I felt very sorry for them and I, and I hoped I would do the best for them. But I thought, Joe, I'm not really the best person to be looking after you. I'm sure there's much people who are much better at it. And that's why I then moved into the, the laboratory side of things. And then 
discovered forensic pathology and I thought, ah, right, this is this is my niche. This mm. this is my tribe. This yeah. is where I belong. And what was it about it? I, it was just fascinating, Sean. I mean, um, I had, at university, they spent six years drumming into me all these things that could happen to people and what I could do to counteract that and keep people alive and healthy. Uh, but it always worried me in that no matter what we did, sometimes people still died. Why? Why did they still die? When, you know, you've got all this clever medicine, um, all these procedures and techniques, why this? Why do they still die? And I was always fascinated by that. And so with forensic pathology, you're trying to work out what on earth went wrong? Why did things go wrong? And then you take it to another level because then we're dealing with the unnatural deaths where there's, we, it's like most patients go into the doctor, they, you know, they sort of rhyme off all their symptoms. And so the doctor has a very good idea. I'm, I don't have any idea at all. I'm just presented with a body and the, the guards just go, sort that out for us, find out what happened, what went wrong. Um, and I just found that intriguing. It's just, I suppose it's partly the scientist in me, but I just like the puzzle side of it. Yes. So it's, yeah, So it, because it, from what you're saying, it sounds like partially science, but partially a bit of a detective as well, or it's a scientific mystery you have to oh. solve. Yeah, you become a you know, medical detective. Yeah. And, you know, on, and we're already getting questions in about this, you know, on CSI shows and, you know, the, 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 the <laughs> forensic pathologist turns up and they go, what happened here? And they look at them for two minutes and go, right, yeah, he was killed with a, a nice pick to the back of his head. It was a Tuesday and his name was Tom. You know, is it as easy as that? <laughs> uh, you know, sometimes it is, <laughs> but sometimes it's not. Um, and I say things have changed in the last, well, the last probably I came into forensic pathology in, in the 1980s. You know, so most people that listen to you weren't even born then. Yes. Um, but I, I came into that in the 1980s and things have changed. And it's, it's the it's forensic science has changed a lot of the death investigation. And that, as I say, they are the people who do all the clever stuff nowadays. My, my role has not changed very much at all. I just have a a scalpel blade and a pair of scissors and that, you know, that hasn't really changed dramatically. Um, so, yeah, so sometimes it's pretty straightforward and sometimes we need to do a bit more digging. Yeah. Uh, are there, somebody, want, one of our listeners wants to know, did you ever have a case that kind of stuck in your craw that was never really solved? Well, as I say, there's always these cases where you're just not quite sure exactly what did happen. And and there's a lot of cases that, um, you know, as a pathologist, I can't say exactly what happened. And um, the, the, the it's up to the guardie to continue the investigation, see if they can find out what could have happened to this person. And all I can do sometimes is say, well, yeah, that might account for it. But on the other hand, there's other possibilities. And there's always cases, and I remember the very first case that I ever did that was unascertained. And as I was saying, this is going way back, back, back. And it was a young a young woman who worked in a bank and had been feeling slightly unwell, went home, was found dead. And we couldn't find anything at the post-mortem at all. And it always struck me because, and I, and I can remember because in, in Scotland, we didn't have even have inquests in those days. So the families used to find it really hard to get answers. And if I couldn't, if I didn't know what the answer was, they were just turned away and said, well, that's it, you know, more or less get on with your life now. Um, and it, 
it was up to what I what what I did then was I said, look, I need to speak to these people. I need to set up my own little clinic and try and explain to people because I find that really hard for these people. Mm. Yeah, and and I suppose if people kind of want someone like you uh, with all the qualifications to have a definitive answer for them, uh, and it's probably mm. maybe sometimes, especially if they're they're grieving as well and they're shocked and they want that to exactly. be invited, they need it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, because most people want to have an answer because it's what the neighbour's going to ask them. They're going to say, what did Jimmy die of? And they'll be able to say, oh, well, he had a massive heart attack or whatever. And if they have to turn around and go, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. So and and they say, well, but there was a postmortem. I know. And they still can't tell us. And of course, then that starts the rumour mills, as you know, that people are, then have their own theories about what could have happened, what did happen. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, when you you go into, especially onto a, a, the, the scene of a crime and there's a body there and, and you've done it so many times. And I assume there's a kind of a layer of professionalism that, you, you know, that, that protects you so you can... Uh, so you can do your job. Does every afterwards, when you think about it, do they all stay with you, or just particular ones? Oh, they all stay. They all stay um, because each death is important, and it's important to the family. Um, and uh, you sometimes dwell on some more than others, mainly because you're thinking, "What could I? What else can I do? What else should I be looking for? Have I? Uh, you know, is there something else that?" you know, that, that we, we could do? Is there some other person I could bring in? So those ones linger on. But at the end of the day, you know, you do what you can do on the day, you prepare a report, and then you put it in the hands, put it back in the hands of the coroner and the guards, and you just say, look, that's me done my part. Anything else you want me to do, just let me know, but um, I'll just wait now to see what the outcome is. Yeah. And there's not much else you can do. Yeah. Uh, and uh, another one of our listeners uh, uh, said they want to uh, thank you for the suburb work you, that you did over the years, especially giving closure uh, to many families, which, of course, you uh, alluded to yourself. And a few other people saying they've already heard the podcast uh, and they've enjoyed it oh. so much. Uh, so are, are you at the stage, Mary, where you could commit the perfect crime? <laughs> for any potential no, murderers listening, Mary, would you have any advice for them? <laughs> Well, the perfect crime is the one that people don't even know has happened. Mm -hmm. So, um, because people always make mistakes. People think they've committed the perfect crime, but there's always something that they do wrong. And that's why they have people like us, because we can just, that little chink, all we need is that little chink, and we go, aha, oh, wait a minute. Hang on a minute, folks. This is not what it, this is not what it seems to be. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I heard it from the expert there, folks, uh, that the podcast is called uh, Dr. Mary Cassidy's Life and Death, and her novel Body of Truth is in the shops now. Mary Cassidy, thank you very much for talking to us today. Lovely to speak to you all. Moncrief, weekdays at 2 p.m. on News Talk.